Hello and welcome back to Series 3 of Launch, Alan and Ivory's careers podcast. My name is Bianca Vasilake, and today's episode is Disputes 101. Joining me to tell us more about what it is like to work in ANO's disputes department, I have Helen Biggin, a counsel in the Litigation and Investigations Group, or LNI, which is part of the broader litigation department, and Edward Levy, an associate in the same group. Thank you both for being here today. It's really nice to have you in person as well. I know, it feels very strange being here in person, but thanks for having us both. We're looking forward to talking about our roles at A&O in litigation. Yeah, great to be here, thanks. Cool. So Helen, starting with the basics, just first things first. How is the A&O London litigation department structured? And what are some of the key differences and similarities between the sub-departments? There are four main groups within the litigation team. So there's litigation and investigations team. There's the IP team, the arbitration team and the employment team. The litigation and investigations team or LNI as we call ourselves, that's the biggest group and that does mainly banking and commercial litigation and investigations. IP as you might assume does <laughs> intellectual property work, employment does employment work and arbitration mainly focuses on bilateral treaty investments and normal arbitration. There can be a bit of an overlap between LNI and arbitration. So for example, in a number of cases that I work on, I do arbitrations and that's just how it falls. And so we often work quite closely in the LNI group with the arbitration team. It's also not unusual to work alongside the employment team. For example, if you're doing an investigation that involves disciplinary angles, then obviously we get the employment team in because they're the real experts. And on investigations, can you tell us a bit more about what an investigation is? What do we mean when we say investigations? depends whether you're looking at it from a banking or a commercial perspective. But if you're looking at it a banking perspective, there have been quite a number of high profile scandals, for example, <laughs> the FX fixing as soon as any wrongdoing or whistleblowing happens and a bank realises that there's a problem, then that's when we get involved and we will start to assist the client to work out what's gone wrong and protect the client interest and work out what's the best thing for the client to do, whether that's self-reporting to the SFO, for example. Or, or what is the SFO? Sorry, the Serious Fraud <laughs> Office. Um, Thank you. Just for our listeners. So many acronyms. I know. (laughs) And then equally on on the commercial side, it it may be that there's just been some wrongdoing in terms of policy procedures at at that particular client. And again, it's just going in, looking at all the documents, interviewing people, working out what's happened and then reporting back to the client and advising them on what to do next. It's very interesting. It is very interesting. (laughs) Uh, And it's actually one of the good things about litigation is that you tend to be with people when they really need you and you actually form some really close relationships with the client because you're there for them at their hour of need, as it were. Yeah, that's true. So how does the London litigation department fit into the broader ANO litigation practice? The London uh, litigation team is basically the biggest litigation team in the firm. But obviously we have litigation teams in different jurisdictions and different offices. A lot of the work that we do is cross-border. It's totally normal for us to work with colleagues across the globe. It's an odd case where you don't end up doing that. So the litigation team generally is quite well integrated across the globe. And I think that's very helpful to know because sometimes people say litigation and they think, oh, it necessarily must be jurisdiction specific. And speaking of cases... What kind of cases do you typically work on? And what are some of the more interesting ones? And why? Very importantly, why, of course. 
So I have quite a broad practice. A lot of the work I do is aviation or shipping based. At the minute, I'm quite busy because everybody knows with COVID, nobody's flying (laughs) anywhere. I do a lot of aircraft repossession work. In that kind of work, what happens is we tend to act for the banks or the lessors that own the aircraft. And when the airline or the lessee stops paying, then that's when we go in and try and get the aircraft back. And that often ends up being in some quite weird and wonderful locations around the world and working a lot with local council or other A&O offices. So that's quite interesting. And often it's very fast paced because obviously aircraft are highly movable. So you have to work out where they are. And then when you get your court order, try and make sure you get them in the jurisdiction when they land before they fly off again. That can be quite interesting. I also do a bit of fraud work and a bit of just general commercial litigation. So at the minute, I've got a shareholder dispute that I'm working on. Okay. And how about you, Ed? I would say that one of the great things about LNI is the breadth of different matters you can work on. I don't think I'd be able to say that there'd be a typical case that I tend to work on, especially at the more junior end of the department where I would say as a junior, the department really wants you to experience everything the department has to offer. So at the moment, I'm working on a couple matters on the investigation side, one quite interesting whistleblowing investigation that we're doing with our Spanish office. And then quite probably the most interesting case I'm working on at the moment is a fraud claim, which is being litigated in the English courts. And there's also some court proceedings going on in Uganda around the same subject matter. And there's lots of interesting individuals involved. And because it's a fraud case, case sort of interesting subject matter that we're trying to get to the bottom of at the moment. Maybe I'm biased because I'm also in arbitrations. I find disputes very interesting and all the detective work you have to do just to weed out what actually happened and how to put forward the best argument. And, but- I, and I do find as well, like I was saying earlier, because people are turning to you in their hour of need, you do actually form those really close relationships and you get a lot of access that I think maybe our banking and corporate clients don't get because people kind of really let you in and so that you know everything. So in order to be able to best protect people. Yeah, that's very true. One thing I would say that Ed was talking about as well, as a junior lawyer, like I think it's really important that you do try and get a broad range of work. Not only does that help develop your skills, but then I think it's really important to come into a job with an open mind as to, you might think that you might like a particular type of work, but until you actually do it, I think think it's important for you to keep an open mind and and then work out where your specialism and your interest lies and then focus on that when you've got a few years post-qualification under your belt. Yeah. And speaking of the type of work and getting an insight into the type of work that one would actually like today, Ed, can you tell us a bit more about the kind of typical trainee tasks and responsibilities in LNI? Sure. I think given the, the breadth of the different matters, it's hard to really pinpoint typical trainee task per se. We've obviously talked about a lot of the disputes work and the investigation work that the department does, but I've also done quite a bit of a third strand being some advisory work where things might not ever get to a dispute or an investigation, but you're advising on the risks of those kind of things. But perhaps just on the dispute side, that's where I spent a lot of my time as a trainee. I think some of the typical tasks could involve things like document reviews or helping or leading on some of the administrative processes that go on behind court proceedings that are quite time consuming. So things like producing bundles, liaising with the court officers, making the filings at court or now uh, online most of the time. (laughs) And then also quite a key part of life as a trainee. And then also it continues when you're a junior lawyer is a lot of legal research into a wide variety of points, whether that be points on core procedure or more into the substance of the issue in dispute. And then you do get the opportunity to do some drafting of correspondence and evidence and perhaps not the most complex pieces of those, but you certainly have the opportunity to do so as a trainee. 
So Helen, what kind of toss do you give your trainees? I was just thinking, what, what have I asked my trainee to do today? So I've asked him to call the court today because we'd filed some documents and we're just checking where they were. He's also doing some document review. He's also helping me draft a letter. And I've also got him a, to, doing a bit of research. He's very busy today, as you can see. <laughs> but yeah, and I totally agree with Ed about what he was saying. And I think as well, although some of the tasks might not be the most exciting tasks in the world, like bundles and trial bundles they're super important and you have to get them right and you can really as a trainee own those tasks and when they go right everyone is very grateful and very relieved <laughs> and I think as well a lot of it is when you first come into a department is, is making sure that you show people that you're keen and that actually you've got good attention to detail and that you can be trusted to do a task and as soon as you've done that people will start to give you more and more responsibility because they'll see that you're capable and able and that's when you get on to doing the more interesting tasks and the other thing I would say as a trainee is make sure that you talk to your trainer so if you get into your seat and after a few months you find that all you've been doing is document review or bundling, then make sure that you say to your trainer that this is great and I appreciate that I've got to do it, but I'd really like to do some drafting of letters or whatever it is that you want to do. And I think if you make that clear, then most trainers will try their very best to make sure that they give you that opportunity to develop those skills. Yeah, and sometimes they might just encourage you to work with some other people who yeah. might have those opportunities, yeah. which I think is very important as well. So with that in mind, we now know what typical trainee tasks are. How do these change after qualification and then as you move on with your career with seniority? Maybe Ed, let's start with you. I'd probably say that the types of tasks I do haven't changed a huge amount, but there is an added layer of kind of responsibility and complexity that comes along with the things that you're doing. So as Helen sort of touched on, you might start to be involved in drafting more substantial pieces of correspondence or evidence. And then also you might have a lot more responsibility for certain processes that you're involved in. So rather than helping with the document review, you might be designing it and kind of liaising with the client about what it is they want and, and how it's going, anything further you need. And in taking more responsibility over these larger processes, you'll inevitably have other trainees and, and paralegals and other kind of teams working, I would say with, but not for, with you. Um, <laughs> you, you'll be you, so. you can coordinate Exactly. teams, yes. And so that's one of the biggest changes I found being someone who now needs to provide instructions and review work that's coming back. It Well, it, it kind of sounded so easy in my head, but it's definitely not so. And it's been a really big learning experience for me over the last year doing that. And it's really kind of honed, especially my communication skills and being really clear about what output we want, why we're doing something and what it's feeding into and what it's for. It's quite funny, isn't it? Like you're a trainee and then you qualify six months later and suddenly you're at the other end of the instructions. Instead of <laughs> receiving them, you're giving them and you're trying to think about all the things you felt were missing when you were receiving instructions and just make up for that. I mean, 100% agree with that. So on one of the cases that I'm doing at the minute, we're doing document review and Q on that matter, the newly qualified solicitor on that matter was my old trainee. And he's now <laughs> running the disclosure exercise. So previously he would have just been doing the disclosure, but now he's the one liaising with our e-discovery team, talking to the client, making sure that we're on track, leading the, we basically have a query call every week or so, or more frequently if required, where members members of the reviewing team that have queries about whether things are relevant or privileged and this person now leads those calls whereas previously it would have been you know another associate while he was a trainee so there's definitely a step up when you qualify so how does this change as the career progresses helen 
you just get more and more responsibility <laughs> and you're just expected to lead more and more cases. So now, I mean, I think particularly when you become senior associate, that's really where the change is, is at that point in time, you're really expected to lead the case pretty much. And basically, I think being a good senior associate, what your job really is, is to make the partner on the case redundant to a certain extent. <laughs> just and, come in at the end. Yeah, or like yeah. they're there to oversee and to bounce the questions off and to make sure that you're heading in the right direction with the strategy of the case. And I think that that is a real big thing that changes as you get more senior is that you're not just doing the making sure the document review is going well you're kind of still doing that but you're also making sure that you're thinking about the strategy of the case and where it needs to go to and what's the best thing to do for the client and so you're kind of looking at it from a higher level as it were not just down in the trenches doing the doc review okay and I think I just add on that that even at the junior end, it's been really interesting and exciting to get to be involved in some of those higher level strategic discussions that go on at more kind of the senior associate and partner level. And whilst at the start, you might not have tons of valuable input into those, it's just a great learning experience to be able to look at the thinking and learn from that because it's that kind of strategic forward looking thinking is a, is a huge aspect in L&I. So that's been great to see in the last year. And one of the things I would say as well is that just because you're junior doesn't mean that your opinion or thoughts aren't valuable. And one of the great things I've always had at a is that no matter what level you are, people are always willing to listen to you. So just because the strategy does fall more on like the senior members of the team, like Ed is saying, there's definitely input at the junior level and that's always listened to and considered. Yeah, I was actually going to mention one of the situations I had just qualified and I was working on this case and I had my little bit on quantum. And uh, I knew I had the most information about it because I had done the research and I had done everything. And we were on this call with a partner and she asked a question and I was the only one really who knew the answer because I had done the work. It felt strange that now suddenly I would I was just expressing an opinion as to the strategy and then the partner was really listening and then we discussed it and then we kind of ended up going that way. And I think for me, as Ed mentioned as well, that was the biggest change from trainee to associate. The fact that you can really have an input into where the case is going, if, of course, you have your reasons for it and you explain them well, you feel like, oh, I really like this case. I can see where my work led. And it's quite exciting. I agree with that. And I think one of the difficult things with the trainee is that you're only in a seat for six months and often cases go on for a lot longer than six months. So I think when you become an NQ and you've qualified back in, you can really get your teeth into a matter and get really involved in the detail. And actually, I know it sounds boring, but a lot of the detail is where your strategy decisions come from, because you need to know what documents say and you need to know what witnesses are saying in order to be able to channel the case in the way that it should be going. So Ed, now that we know how cool Illinois is, <laughs> how cool disputes are, of course, everyone should go for this department. But why did you choose to qualify in Illinois? Quite a few reasons that I chose really to qualify in l and I'd say that since law school or the, the LPC and GDL that I did after university, I always enjoyed working with the law, so researching it and, and applying it to a set of facts. And that was behind a lot of the choices I made as a trainee. So I also sat in a financial regulation seat that involved a lot of that kind of work, and, and as did l and and especially as a trainee and at the junior end. And then another reason, which I think you've already touched on quite a bit, is also the investigative aspect of a lot of the work we do, both in the investigations and the disputes and the more kind of court dispute areas of work that Ellen and I do, especially at the start of matters or throughout them, really, there's processes involving document reviews and interviews and trying to get to the bottom of what happened, what's going on. And sometimes that's almost the entire matter is that. And I've always really enjoyed that because even though it can be tiresome at times, if you don't feel like you're getting anywhere, or you're not finding what you're meant to be finding, when you do start to put the pieces of the puzzles together, it's a really rewarding feeling. 
I agree. It's like you're a detective that has finally solved the case. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for that. And I thought it would also be helpful, in addition to giving an overview as to the type of work that we do in litigation, to all talk about the growing trend, especially now with the pandemic and how this is changing the way that cases, that hearings are actually conducted, virtual and hybrid hearings. Would either of you want to explain what that means? Yeah, sure. Shall I, shall I take that, Ed? Yeah, I think, think that would be best. Prior to COVID, basically all hearings were done in person. So you all turned up to court and sat before the judge. And generally, witnesses would also turn up and be cross-examined in person. You might have the odd instance where someone had a minor role and was based overseas and it made sense to, to do their cross-examination by video link. But in general, everybody was in the courtroom. And then with the pandemic and everything shutting down and us all having to work from home, it basically everything had almost overnight had to move from being in person person to fully virtual so that meant that the judge was sat in their office at home we were all sat at home the witnesses were all sat at home and we all had to dial in basically I think it's now done over teams it was done over zoom for a while and it was quite a big change in particular I think the way that it had happened in person normally was that people had hard copy bundles and that doesn't quite work so well when you're not all in the same room there was a big focus now on electronic bundles and making sure that they're all up to scratch and also as well I think the big challenge with virtual hearings in terms of outcomes is the cross-examination of witnesses. I think you miss a lot of the body language clues that happen when you can physically see someone in the room. You just miss them, I think, on virtual hearings. And then now what we're seeing now that things are opening back up again is hybrid hearings. It's basically a mixed match of in-person and virtual. You'll get parts of the hearing done virtually, so they tend to be like the opening and closing submissions where it's just counsel, the barristers setting out the case or closing the case. And then for the in-person bit, you'll actually get the cross-examination of witnesses. I think you've already touched upon how they are different from in-person hearings. But I was also curious how the preparation is different for these virtual or hybrid hearings compared to in-person hearings. In terms of the preparation, I don't find things too dissimilar between virtual and in-person hearings. I would say in my experience that the virtual hearings have been a bit easier to prepare for, especially on the junior end. As Helen touched on, there's much less printing of bundles, which is definitely a help. Although... <laughs> and copy checking, because exactly. of course you print it and then you need to check every single page. But the paralegals do that because yes. they're brilliant. <laughs> yeah, very grateful for the help there. But I will say that's a bit judge and barrister dependent. And in a recent virtual hearing that, that I was in, it didn't turn out to actually be that much easier. I think we printed maybe seven or eight sets of our hard copy bundles. We had lots of witnesses who all really wanted a hard copy in front of them when Did they were... Did you courier them? So yeah, to all corners of the country where Midlands, Seven Oaks, everywhere basically. <laughs> so that was that was a bit difficult. Because you need to time the courier as well, whereas typically you would just bring it on the hearing day. Exactly. And we didn't forget about the paralegals. We did... Uh, make a stop on the way to some of the paralegals' houses who still kindly did the copy checking of the hard copy bundles from home. Okay. Helen, do you have anything to add in your experience, maybe from the more senior end of the preparation? No, I mean, I was just thinking about, I did a virtual hearing, uh, a summary judgment a couple of months ago. One of the big things that we were talking to counsel about before that was how we give them instructions, because normally we sit on the bench behind them in court and we pass them notes or in the break you have a chat. And actually we decided that given that it was quite a small team, we would actually all be together in one building so that counsel came over to A&O and we had one of the massive client rooms, client meeting rooms, so we could all be spaced out and we did it that way and that actually worked quite well. And we 
had our amazing audiovisual team on standby to dial us in. So actually it was quite seamless. But I do think that that is one of the big challenges is trying to get instructions from the client and give instructions to the barrister team if you're not all in the same place together. So given that there are quite a few challenges, while they can be overcome, they still remain a few challenges. Why do you think this is a growing trend? I just think it saves a lot of time and money. And I think it definitely is... And and they've worked really well. On the whole, everybody has the odd hiccup. We all saw that story about the Texan lawyer that appeared as a cat. (laughs) (laughs) I have not had that happen to me. Clarify that he was not a cat. (laughs) (laughs) So there are the odd hiccups. But in general, they work very well, I think, for quite small hearings. So interlocutory applications or, uh, you know, quite small cases, they work quite well. And I do think they save a lot of time and effort. We normally have to go all the way down to court and then be there and then come back again and that obviously takes a couple of hours out of your day and normally if you're doing a virtual hearing you can just go down to the meeting room here or do it from your house so I think for smaller hearings they definitely should stay and they work really well for the larger more complicated cases I do think there's a lot to be said for them being in person particularly when you're cross-examining witnesses for the reasons I previously mentioned. And I would just say on that point that in a a recent virtual hearing that I was doing, it was a few days before the hearing was meant to start. And I think there was three parties involved. And the judge asked us with very little time left whether anyone wanted to do any of the hearing in person. And it was a very resounding no from from all the parties. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that would have been quite a big change, wouldn't it? Scrambling to get everything done for in person. And I do think think (laughs) clients quite like it because obviously a lot of the cases we do are international. And so clients aren't necessarily all based in London so it's not always easy for them to trot down to court and so if they're based overseas particularly it's quite handy for them to be able to dial in and they can still witness the proceedings without having to pay for someone to fly to London and sit in court. I will say though that on one of the cases that I've been working on it was really interesting because the clients, the arbitrators, the witnesses were spread out from New York to Singapore over the time zones and when we wanted to do it virtually and we looked at the actual time in the day when we could have the hearing we realized that there were only three or four hours that we could do per day and for instance on those sort of cases we thought well it's better to wait a bit just postpone it and do it in person just because of the challenge of having so many time zones. And of course, you don't want maybe the arbitrator to be awake at 2am their time because they can't focus on what you're saying. I'm very curious where it will go. Yeah, and I do think there's been more practical things that have arisen that people haven't thought about. There's been cases recently where people have been giving expert evidence, for example, in Germany, because that's where they live and nobody can fly anywhere. And actually, can they do that under German law? Are they allowed to do that? And have you got sort the relevant permissions from the German court? And I think that's been a, an area that, people hadn't really thought about before because normally everybody flies into London and then you do it all in person. So it it is interesting, but does throw up its own wrinkles from time to time. Well, thank you all for all these very helpful insights. I've definitely enjoyed talking about disputes and I hope our listeners have found this very helpful as well. And now moving on to the game part of the podcast, we are going to play Would You Rather No Drinking, unfortunately. (laughs) I've got my water anyway, so... (laughs) Should never drink and draft. Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is the motto. Yeah. (laughs) The first question that I thought of is related to technology. Because we spoke about how technology has changed the way we have hearings. And we'll see what happens in the future. But would you rather be without internet for a week or without your phone for a week? Without my phone. (laughs) Definitely agreed. Without my phone. Why is that? No one can reach you. 
That's not That's a bad point. thing. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I don't think I've had a week like that that I can really remember. I mean, I did have two days recently in the deep countryside with very little or, or no phone signal and just the amount you can recharge and how relaxing that is, is just incredible. So no yeah. phone for sure. <laughs> cool. Then the next one is about... Oh, I quite like this one, actually. I'm very curious what you guys will say. Would you rather be the star player on a losing team or ride the bench on a winning one? I would have to say ride the bench on a winning one. Just want to win. Absolutely. Doesn't matter that you didn't contribute. I think the ideal position in a football team is probably the reserve goalkeeper. I mean, you're probably still (laughs) still earning the big bucks, but you don't really do anything and there's no pressure involved. So why not? Okay. How about you, Helen? Yeah, I'll go the same. I just feel like if you're the star player on the losing team, then everyone's going to blame you for losing, right? I mean, not really, right? Because it's a team game. So, but yeah. Okay, so we have a unanimous decision on this one. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you so much for being on this episode. It's been great having you. And I'm sure it's been really helpful for our listeners. No, thanks again. We've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I hope the listeners do find it helpful. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to tune in for our next episode, as well as check out our social media and graduate recruitment website.